Amen. Thank you, Stephanie and Curtis. I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to 2 Samuel, chapter 16. 2 Samuel, chapter 16, as we look together at verses 1 to 14. We are hearing a lot these days about normalcy, and we talk about a return to normalcy. And for most of us, we know we need to qualify that a little bit to say, well, at least some version of normalcy, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that A, normalcy is really just an illusion. No moment is exactly the same as the previous moment. Every second, every moment that we live is different from the moment before. We can't go back in time. We can't pause time. We know that. But we also realize that on the other side of a pandemic, on the other side of COVID-19, the world can't be the same. Something this dramatic is inevitably going to change you and change me and change the world. It just will. So we know that normalcy is really a figment of our imagination. And the same applies no matter what personal trials or tribulations you may be facing in your life right now. We've got COVID-19, the pandemic, that's affected all of us in one way or another, but each of us has our own trial, right? We each have our own troubles that we have to face. So normalcy is not a thing, really. And so that means, for each of us, we have a very simple decision to make. We face a fork in the road when a crisis, when a tragedy when a trial, when a hardship comes our way. And that simple choice is this. We can either humble ourselves before God, or we can harden our hearts. And when I put it that way, so many of us say, well, of course I want to humble my heart. I would never want to harden my heart against God. Be careful. Be careful. Because we need to know exactly what it looks like to humble ourselves. And so often, what we might think is humility is really a form of hardening our hearts. And this passage in 2 Samuel, as we look at David, is going to give us all kinds of reasons to humble our hearts before God in the face of trials. As we look at King David and look at when he faced maybe the most severe trial of his entire life, when his very own son Absalom is revolting against him and pushing him off the throne. And so David is literally on the road out of Jerusalem away from his throne, not sure if he will ever return, knowing that there will never be that normal again. 
And so for David, he faces a fork in the road. He faces the same choice that you and I face in this moment. Will we humble our hearts or will we harden our hearts? But we can be encouraged by knowing our sufferings may stretch us to the breaking point. need to be very candid about that. Our sufferings, our hardships, our trials may stretch us to the breaking point. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you are a human being, you will experience suffering in this world and in this life. While that's true, our sufferings may stretch us to the breaking point. The God-revealed in Jesus is sovereign enough to turn even the most severe trial, even the most severe trial, even what David is facing here, into a testimony of his grace toward those, not just to anybody, but toward those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. I pray that on the other side of this service, you have a testimony to God's grace. As you reflect on your own life, as you reflect on the world and our nation, and whatever suffering, whatever trial you're facing, whether it's mild or severe, that you would be convinced that you can and you do have a testimony to God's grace. So let's see what reason we have to be humbled. We pick up our reading with verse 1. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, a hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. Pausing there. So who in the world are these people that David is encountering? Well, recall that prior to David's ascension to the throne, there was another king in Israel by the name of Saul, Saul was intensely jealous of David, obsessive, maniacal, paranoid even, of David. 
And he did everything within his power to try to eliminate David. Sometimes it was very direct. Maybe he would just throw his very own spear at David on at least a couple of occasions. Sometimes it was a little less and less direct. Sometimes he would send someone else to maybe try to assassinate David. But when David had opportunity after opportunity to exact revenge on Saul for what he had done to him, he refused. He always refused. And the biblical historian writing in 1 and 2 Samuel is at pains to show us that David is totally innocent of the blood of Saul and his household. Well, eventually, not because of anything David did, Saul meets his end at the hand of the Philistines, the archenemy of Israel. And when Saul dies, David decides that he wants to show kindness to anyone who remains in Saul's household. And you read about this in 2 Samuel 9. And as it turns out, there is one person, at least, from Saul's household. And that one person is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson, and he's the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who was also killed along with his father Saul in battling the Philistines. And Mephibosheth is disabled. He was dropped as a child. And David shows him kindness. He gives him land and property and, and, and a household. And he puts Ziba in charge of Mephibosheth's household to run it for him, to be the manager. And that was the last we've heard of Mephibosheth. But it's important to remember that he is from Saul's household. And anyone who is associated with Saul's household is going to maybe harbor some resentment against David, who may like it when David is now thrown off his throne. They may see this as a comeuppance, in other words. Well, Ziba decides to take advantage of that. And he steps forward, and he's got all kinds of wonderful provisions for David and his beleaguered men as they leave Jerusalem and head out into the wilderness in haste, knowing that Absalom and his troops are about to occupy Jerusalem. And the writer goes into great detail about all the provisions. He has donkeys for them to ride on, bread and fruit, wine for them to drink, all kinds of wonderful provisions. And David is a little skeptical. He says, what are you doing, Ziba? And Ziba says, oh, these are for you. I know you're heading out to the wilderness. I know you need help. Here, have it. And so David says, okay, well, wait a second. All of this belongs to Mephibosheth. Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, in effect, sorry to tell you, David, but he stayed in Jerusalem, and he's kind of glad that you're falling out of favor with the people. And he says that now my grandfather's kingdom is about to be restored to me. David takes it at face value and says, okay, all right, fine. Well, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. 
And Ziba says, I humbly bow, I accept it. There are two reasons why we should be skeptical here. The first is because of the truth we read in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. David is basing his opinion entirely on the basis of what Ziba says to him. Right? He hasn't talked to Mephibosheth. He just makes a decision. And as it turns out, it's a very rash decision. And spoiler alert, when you get to 2 Samuel 19, when David comes back, well, then we find out that Ziba was lying. (laughs) He was lying. David, in his weakened state, in knowing that he's facing a crisis, and knowing that normal is never going to return again, he just makes a rash decision. And so there's a warning in this for you and for me. We need to recognize that when we are facing a crisis moment, we need to be especially careful. We need to be leery of making any huge decisions without properly discerning God's will and asking for God's guidance. We need to be especially careful when we're weighing what one person tells us because there will be people who try to take advantage of you in a weakened state. There just are, right? That's what Ziba does. He knows, oh, David's desperate for help right now. I know he would love to have some extra provisions, so maybe I can kind of weasel my way in here and alienate David from Mephibosheth, and then I get Mephibosheth's property. Huh. Works out for him. But here's why we should be humbled in the face of what we're reading here. Be humbled because God can turn our errors, our rash decisions, our failures into evidences of his goodness. Evidences of his goodness. And this actually applies to both Ziba and David. In the case of Ziba, it's true in a very general way that every single one of us, whether we are a believer in God or not, whether we go to church or we don't, every single one of us receives more of God's goodness than we deserve. Amen? Every single human being. It rains, says the Lord Jesus, on the just and the unjust. God's common grace. The fact that you have sunshine outside and can receive vitamin D in your body. That is common grace. That's not because of anything in you. That's not because of any special intervention of God. That's his general provision for all people. And so Ziba here is a recipient of God's common grace. This works, at least for now. It'll come back to bite him in a little bit. But for now, this actually works for him. His error, his scheming, 
God actually allows him to enjoy some favor. And so just be aware, just stop for a second and just realize that as a human being, we receive more of God's goodness than we could ever possibly deserve. But there's a special sense, a special sense in which we can see God turning an error into an evidence of his goodness, and that's with David. David, as we said, made a a rash decision. He rushed to judgment here. And yet, look at what God does. God takes Ziba's lies, his scheming, his plotting, and he provides for David as David is in the wilderness. Look at how David and his men benefit from this. They need this stuff. They need provisions. They need food. And God gives it to him. His chosen king. So be encouraged. Wherever you look back over your life and and, and you know you made a mistake and, and you regret that. And in hindsight, it's obvious you shouldn't have done that. So obvious, but in that state of mind, you rushed to a decision. You made a mistake. You said something you shouldn't have said. Now, that doesn't justify that decision or what you said, but it does give us reason to humble our hearts before God, realizing that there is no error. There is no failure. There is no sin that can hinder God from pouring out his grace on his people who call upon his name and who humble themselves before him. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. Look at how God is still providing for David. Well, not everyone in the house of Saul is looking to show favors to David. So we continue our reading in verse 5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask? Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. 
So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Well, if it weren't for the harshness of what this man Shimei is saying to David, this would just be completely comical. I mean, as as David is, is leaving Jerusalem, he's lost his throne, he's lost the majority of his people, he's heading to the wilderness, he doesn't exactly know where he's going, and here comes Shimei along the side of the road, taunting him, cursing him, throwing rocks at him, throwing dirt and dust at him. And the narrator lets us know, and it's not like David was unarmed. It's not like he didn't have his bodyguard around him. They're right beside him to his right and his left. And yet Shimei is continuing to utter these curses and hurl insults at him. Naturally, one of David's companions, Abishai, who tended to be kind of a hothead, says, are we going to stand here and take this? <laughs> I could silence him right now, David. Just, just tell me the word. Just tell me the word. I'm on it, and we don't have to bother with him anymore. And David refuses. No. No. And why is that? Why is that? In David's state of humiliation, why does he just allow Shimei to curse him like this? What we need to see is that God can turn our humiliation, and David is completely humiliated at this point. What does he have left? God can turn our humiliation into heart change. Heart change. David has a changed heart. And we can see that David has a changed heart because of his attitude toward God. Your heart is going to reveal your posture and your attitude toward God. And we can just contrast David's attitude, his heart, toward God with Shimei. Look at Shimei for a second. So, he says, get out, get out, you murderer. You're, you're, you're a good-for-nothing scoundrel. And see, you're getting exactly what you have coming. Now, God is giving your kingdom in the hands of Absalom. Notice how Shimei knows exactly what God is doing and why God is doing it. He's confident that he can look at the world, he can look at David's life, he can look at his, his circumstances and say, see, I know exactly what God's doing here. Ha! Told you. Told you you were wrong. Told you Saul was the best. Our household wins. You lose. Right? That's what Shimei is saying. Now, how different is David? David says to Abishai, first of all, what does this have to do with you? Okay, I don't need your help with this. And it may be that he's cursing me because God told him to. I don't know. It may be. Notice how David doesn't presume to know what God is doing. 
whereas Shemi does. And one of the greatest evidences of a hardened heart in, in the face of a trial, in the face of suffering, is when you start saying, you know what God's doing. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, humble yourself. Humble your heart before God's mighty hand. Say, I don't own God. God's not just on my team. He's not just on my side. He's not just with Saul or with David or with Absalom. No one has a monopoly on God. Amen? No one has a monopoly on God. No one controls God. But oh, how we know what God should be doing. And consider this instance in the Gospel of Luke. We're told in Luke 9, verse 51, that the Lord Jesus actually faced something somewhat similar as he made his way to Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. <laughs> you see the similarity? Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He wants to pass through a Samaritan village. He just needs maybe a bed for the night, some provisions. And they refuse because he's headed to Jerusalem. So James and John, the hotheads, the Abishai in Jesus' circle, they say, Jesus, should we call in a nuclear strike on these people? How dare they insult the Messiah? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. That's not the way, James and John. That's not the way. When we face humiliation, and Jesus was facing humiliation as well, not because of anything he had done, not because of any sin in him, but he was facing humiliation. He knew that. He knew he would be betrayed. He knew he would be arrested. He knew he would be crucified. And when you are in a state of humiliation and you don't know where God is and you don't know what God is doing, that's where you've got to be so careful to humble yourself and not harden your heart against God. Because remember, God is more kind and more generous to all of us than we deserve. And the fact is, David knows that even as the direct accusation that Shimei is making against him, you're a murderer, is, is false. David didn't have any hand in killing Saul or his family. Shimei is saying more than he knows because David in his heart knows he is a murderer and an adulterer. He knows he is guilty before God, and he knows that so much of his trial, so much of his suffering is happening as a direct consequence of his errors and his sin. And so in the face of that, he, he humbles himself to say, 
I don't know what God is doing. I'm not going to presume to know what God is doing, but I know that I don't deserve any of God's favor. I don't deserve His grace. And however God chooses to humble me through suffering, I will embrace because I trust Him. David's posture, his attitude toward his sin has so much to teach you and teach me today. Because I need to say something that will offend some of you. It will offend some of you. And it's this truth. That human beings are not morally neutral. We don't come into the world as a blank slate. We come into the world as sinners with a predisposition to sin inside of our environment of sin. And that means that we are not basically good people who sometimes do bad things. We are basically bad people who sometimes do good things. And if that offends you, then ask yourself the question, are you hardening your heart against God or are you humbling your heart toward God? And if you say, well, I I think people are basically good. I mean, yeah, people make bad decisions all the time, but we're basically good at heart, right? Well, where do you see that in the teaching of Jesus? Where do you see that in Scripture? What I read is Jesus saying, it is out of the heart that evil thoughts come. I read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is so vitally important when you face suffering, when you face trials, and you face this fork in the road between humbling yourself and hardening your heart. Because our natural tendency is to say, This didn't happen because of anything I've done. I don't deserve this. This loved one doesn't deserve this. And while it's not true that Shami is justified in what he's saying, any more than the people who crucified Jesus were justified in what they were doing, it is true that God is so sovereign, so almighty, that he can take even the severest trial He can take even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and he can turn that into a testimony of his grace. And so as you look at your life and you say, why is this happening to me right now? The answer is not to say, oh, it must have been because of that thing I did 10 years ago. Ah, finally came back to bite me. No, no. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we don't deserve to be alive before a holy God, but if we are, that's evidence of his general grace to you. And in the face of suffering, the face of a trial, can you say, I want to draw closer to God in the midst of this because he is my light, he is my salvation. I want to seek his face. One thing do I ask, as we read in Psalm 27, one thing do I ask, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what I want. I don't want want comfort. I don't want prosperity. I want Him. Is God that real to you or not? Or do you still think you deserve something from Him? 
David knew that he didn't. And look at the other reason that he refuses to allow Abishai to exact revenge. He realizes that in the face of his real trial, Shemi is nothing. He says, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. What is what, is what this dirt and these rocks and these curses, what is that to me when my own son is betraying me? Leave him alone. And in your life, what you have to realize that is whatever the source of that struggle is, that trial is, that suffering that thing, no matter how bad it is, is really not your enemy. That thing is really not your problem. Shemi is not really the problem. The problem is in your heart, and it's in my heart. And the greatest struggle in our lives is against the sin in our heart and the rebellion in our heart. And the fact that We're called to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And no one, and I mean no one, fulfills that perfectly. Which is why we are sinners in desperate need of his grace. But don't mistake signs of the enemy for the enemy itself and the sin that we have to wrestle with and fight with. But be encouraged and be humbled by what David says in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. God can turn our curses into blessings. God can turn our sin our failure, our shortcomings into our sanctification. Because what does God really want to do in your life? He wants to make you more and more like Jesus. And I'm looking around this room and I don't see Jesus, okay? And if you look behind the pulpit, you won't see Jesus either. We all need to be sanctified. We all need to be made more holy, conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. And there is work to be done, amen? There is work to be done in me and in you. And sometimes God uses misery, pure, unadulterated misery and suffering. Not that he causes that. We're in a sinful world. These things happen. But he can use that to instill patience in you and perseverance in you and cultivate a greater desire for God in you. Don't waste a crisis. Don't waste misery. And this is also the basis of our hope. That God can turn the curse of sin into the blessing of salvation for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we consider the Lord Jesus, we realize just how humbled we should be. Consider these words from 1 Peter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, 
Do you hear the echoes? When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If the thought of the Lord Jesus, the only perfectly righteous, innocent person, doesn't humble your heart, then nothing will. Nothing will. And I don't know exactly what you have going on in your life. I don't know exactly what trials or what suffering you may be facing. But I do know that you face a fork in the road. You face a choice. Will this suffering, will this trial draw you closer to God or not? Will it turn you away from Him so that you only pray when you're around other people? You only read His Word when you go to church or when someone's watching. You only talk about God, really. You don't ever talk to God. Be careful. A fork in the road. It doesn't matter how mild you may think the trial is or the suffering is. That is a choice you face. And in that moment, if you humble yourself Look at the Lord Jesus. Look what he's done for you. There was no deceit. There was no sin in him. David suffered justly. Not Jesus. His greatest son. And so are you looking to Jesus in this moment of trial and this suffering, whatever it is? Or are you trying to endure it? Trying to persevere? When all the while, the Lord, who is our light and our salvation, is available to you, will you call out to him? Will you seek his face in that? He has done everything necessary in the Lord Jesus to save a fallen sinner like you and like me. Have you ever been so convicted of your sin that you know you need Jesus to save you? Let me tell you, that, that, is the prelude of real salvation and real hope. May you know it today if you've never known it before. May you cling to that hope as we have it in Jesus for the rest of your life. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, humble us. We confess that we are so good at building up walls of pride. We are so skilled at inflating our own sense of self-worth and worthiness. We're so adept at passing blame to something else or someone else, all the while refusing to look inside of ourselves at our own heart. And so I Thank you, Lord, for this word for us today. 
that challenges us to address what is really wrong, what really ails us, and what really ails the world. And we don't have to look outside. We can just look inside of the workings of our own mind and how we think and how we function. And we confess that we're lost. But because of the Lord Jesus, we can be found by your grace for your glory. Lord, help us to come home to you our light, and our salvation. Help us to long to dwell in your presence forever. And where we still have uncertainty, and where we still have doubts, and where we still don't know what to make of this, and why you're allowing what you are allowing, we pray that your presence and the grace we can enjoy in your presence would be enough. That you would be our vision, our guiding light, our help in times of trouble because you have proven yourself to be our hope in the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to trust him, come what may, and we ask all these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.